You're listening to Black Mirror Reflections, a podcast thinking through the technology, philosophy, morality, and politics of the series Black Mirror. Welcome back to Black Mirror Reflections. Today, I am joined by John Cerrito to talk about the entire history of you, the third episode of the first season of Black Mirror, which premiered in 2011. John Cerrito is a director, screenwriter, and editor living in Los Angeles. He received his MFA in film directing from UCLA's School of Theater, Film, and Television in 2018. His filmmaking often sits at the intersection of speculative fiction and social advocacy, with a particular focus on gender, identity, patriarchy, and mental health. His films have screened at Cinequest, Indie Memphis, Atlanta, Nashville, Dances with Films, and Napa Valley Film Festivals. His debut feature as a writer-director, The Way You Look Tonight, was released this year through Gravitas Ventures and is currently streaming for free on Amazon Prime. Now, I met John first in 2013 when we were both participating in a summer research institute at Rhodes College. I was one of the faculty members there at the time, and John was a student scholar working on a documentary film following four Southern transgender women of different racial and socioeconomic backgrounds as they dealt with the realities of transitioning in and around the Mid-South. I was blown away with his vision and skill. And so many years later, when he launched a Kickstarter campaign for his film, The Way You Look Tonight, I donated. Now, it's the one and only Kickstarter campaign I have ever donated to. So sorry to all my broke friends and former students, but I'm so glad I did because that film is amazing. And again, it's called The Way You Look Tonight. It's streaming for free on Amazon Prime. Definitely go check it out. So it's a great pleasure to have you here today to talk about the entire history of you. Welcome, John. It is a tremendous pleasure to be here. And I'm sorry, I was trying not to laugh during your (laughs) intro. It was incredibly flattering. It is always hard to run a Kickstarter campaign, but it's good to know, especially when you have like mentors who come back and support you years later. It's really a tremendous honor, both to have your support then and to be here now. It was a tremendous pleasure to not have thrown my money away on a shitty film. So good job. (laughs) Okay, John, you have told me that you have listened to one of these Black Mirror Reflections episodes before. What's coming? Right here at the beginning, I always ask our guests to summarize the Black Mirror episode that we're going to talk about. So could you summarize the entire history of you? Of course. And I apologize in advance if I get a little granular with the details on this one. It is an episode about obsessing about granular details. So I think that's appropriate. Yeah. Um, Maybe just to start off to give some context for this one. So it's the first episode to not be written by Charlie Booker in this series. So this is from uh, the first season in 2011. And this episode was actually written by Jesse Armstrong, who Americans may recognize as the creator of Succession. He was also also, uh, the co-creator of the cult favorite series, uh, Peep Show, which stars uh, the comedy duo Mitchell and Webb, which is known for being filmed with each shot being one of the main character's point of view. So every shot cuts back and forth between character perspectives. Interesting, disorienting to get into, but thematically similar to this in a way. But uh, that's an interesting parallel. This is also interesting as his first real uh, foray into drama. He's usually a comedy guy. Uh, So this is the first thing he made that didn't really have a drop of comedy anywhere in it. Uh, (laughs) But just to give you guys some context for that. But so the episode itself, we open on the character of Liam, who is played by Toby Keeble, who recently had a great performance as another sort of jerk 
in Apple TV Plus is The Servant, if you're interested at all in horror series, that's a really good one. And so he's undergoing this kind of excruciating performance review at a law firm that he works at, and it's not going particularly well in the midst of this corporate restructuring. And afterwards, he is obsessing over that interview, and he's actually replaying it over and over again using this technology called a grain which is this implant uh, that's placed behind the ear that records his point of view and allows him to replay moments of his life from his perspective. And that's really convenient because there's also a, a little teaser or trailer for that technology while he's in the taxi. So we, as the audience, get a little bit of exposition about how the technology works and everything. But it also has 30 years of backup memory. So you're able to recall memory in the digital sense. These aren't pulled straight from his brain. There is a camera in his eye that it captures sort of objective recordings of his environment, like a GoPro that could fit inside of your eye. And you can also project and broadcast this feed um, onto other screens, which uh, we see immediately when he passes through an airport security check and is forced to scrub through the last week of his life to authenticate who he is before traveling. This episode is really good about picking a specific technology and then dropping different sort of extrapolations of how that could be used in this person's daily life. And another aspect of this technology is you can zoom in and enhance details. And we see that in the following scene when Liam's wife, I think her name is Fionn, but they call her Fee, played by Jodie Whittaker, who people might recognize as the most recent doctor on Doctor Who. So she's attending a dinner party with a group of old friends. And one of the guests is nitpicking a recent hotel stay by zooming in and showing how terrible the carpet is. It gets into how specific you could use this technology to play through everything that's happened to you in the last day and, and show your friends and complain about it. And uh, then Liam also uses this technology to look at a backlog of footage so that he can remember the names and personal details of the people at the party, which does sound super convenient if you could recall, oh, I, I knew Dr. J from that cookout two years ago before Jason's wedding or whatever. <laughs> but so he uses that to ground himself in this moment. And he walks in and notices his wife being friendly with this handsome gent named Jonas. And he tells all the other party goers about his disastrous appraisal and they try to neg him into showing them, but he ends up not doing that. But he starts to get a vibe from Jonas and uh, starts to use his grain to analyze that first moment between Jonas and Fee before she recognizes that her husband was there. So as they eat, Jonas is working the room. He's killing it with jokes. And he starts talking about his own failed marriage. And he mentions that he enjoys watching his, what they call redos, which are the grain recordings of his greatest sexual encounters. And it's also a shock to the guests when we learn uh, a little bit later that one of them actually does not have a grain. And it's like that conversation that we probably had five years ago. Like, you don't have an iPhone. Everyone in this world has this technology. And she actually uh, does not have it because she was a victim of this sort of robbery or mugging where it was forcibly removed, probably made to order some rich person paid for a pretty young woman's grain technology. And it wasn't backed up or encrypted. So that information is just out there, very reminiscent of those celebrity iCloud leaks from a few years, which actually happened after this, I believe, which is, again, just one of those early examples of this show prophesizing super what, what, uh, and, and super timely. Uh, but anyways, this woman decided after she had that horrific experience, she enjoyed not being perpetually plugged in. And so she decided to live without this technology. But someone else at the party is incredibly skeptical of this and couldn't imagine living without her grain because of how easily manipulated memories are, how suggestible they are, while having this grain gives you an objective recording of reality that you could use 
as we can see, in some kind of horrific ways. And then afterwards in the car ride home, Liam and Fee actually do dissect that performance review. They're like rewinding and enhancing and oh, look at what he said here. But the conversation pivots to Jonas as uh, Liam starts to insult him for being a dick. And they replay another moment to recap because Liam has actually invited Jonas back to their place. But then once they get here, he reneges on that and forces him to go home. We start to see this as like an establishment of this grain is used to settle arguments a lot of the time. And at this point, we're starting to get to see Liam as a sort of jealous and obsessive jerk. And after that, we see them get home. They allow the nanny to stay over the night. Here's when we learn that they ha he has an 18-month-old child. I don't know exactly the exact age, but they already have a, a grain installed in this child. And they use that as a sort of nanny cam to make sure that nothing inappropriate or neglectful has happened to the child. And this is what I really love about um, this episode, mostly because I think this is the first one that really felt like it established what Black Mirror really was for me. And this is the first one that I recommended because it was able to show a really grounded world and then start to pick away at these sort of dystopian elements throughout. But that's total aside. So Liam and Fee get into a, an argument about Jonas and they use Liam's grain to prove that like clearly something was going on and she admits that they had a brief relationship which has different details than she had previously mentioned about her previous romantic encounters. And in the midst of this argument Liam actually uses his first sexual encounter with his now wife as like evidence against her that she originally referred to this relationship as a week and now she's calling it a month and we start to unravel Liam's history of jealousy and the turbulence of their relationship and really start to see him as an, an abusive character. He starts to replay in this moment, gets really angry and insults her, calls her a bitch. And then she uses that little tidbit to replay back to him. So we start to see how this technology could really be used in petty arguments to escalate what would yeah. normally be something based on memory is now grounded in an objective reality in a way that really becomes kind of hard to handle. But anyway, they reconcile, they have sex. And but and while we think that we're seeing this sort of really passionate romantic encounter, it's actually them both reliving earlier sexual encounters while having this kind of very kind of septic, weird, de detached sex while they're replaying. It's like watching porn, but they're both in their own eyes. One, one thing to point out here is the visual way that you know that someone is accessing the memories in their own head is that their eyes glaze over and they look milky almost like they're blind or high or something like that yeah um, i'll just if i can just jump in right here because the this technology shows up throughout all five seasons of black mirror and by the third season it's given a name they call it zed eyes but it, yeah exactly as you describe what we see is that when these kind of eyes are activated, they, they glaze over and get, there's no other way to describe it, a kind of black mirror look, like a screen, yeah. you know? So. It is, exa yeah, exactly, the reflection of a screen. But after they have sex, Liam goes downstairs and starts to really, like, obsess over these memories from the night before. He pours himself a drink. We can tell that he's totally taking a reasonable and healthy approach to this, but he is focusing on the conversation about Jonas and his sex redo library. He stays up all night focusing on this. He even in the morning pulls the nanny in, into the conversation, starts to really become unhinged. And it, these are not the actions of a sane and grounded person, but he confronts Fee over it, analyzing the grain and the way that, you know, she reacted to his jokes and even uses like his memory of someone else's grain to prove that like they were dating for longer than 
she had even originally said. But this sort of causes him to blow up and spiral out and he's drinking and it ends up with him driving over to Jonas's house. And the way that we reveal information is, is a little, it's more artful than this, but in terms of the objective timeline, he goes over there and essentially holds him with a glass bottle to his throat, claiming he's going to gouge out his grain if he doesn't delete all of the footage of his wife. And he ends up crashing his car on the way home. But we see through his recall of that moment that he focuses in on a still that when he goes back and confronts his wife reveals that she actually had sex with him about 18 months prior because it was in her in the in their family bedroom so liam accesses his grain and observes there's screens within screens here but he sees jonas's grain as he's deleting it and focuses in on jonas's grain which has a picture of fee in it the way that he discovers it is that it's a painting that Liam bought for four feet in their family bedroom. And he uses this information to discover that they had sex about 18 months prior. But the sort of final crescendo of this episode is him trying to get her to replay that encounter to confirm that protection was used and that he is actually the father of his 18-month-old uh, child and she acts like she doesn't have that information that she's deleted it but eventually he pressures her into showing it the implication is that no protection was used it throws the paternity of their daughter into question and the final moments of the episode are liam replaying sort of picturesque moments of his wife and daughter while we see that he is currently in an empty house and those memories become more and more painful until he decides to uh, go in the bathroom and cut out his grain and potentially, I think, blind himself. I think the implication is that process, when done under the table, can cause you to, to go blind. So that is uh, the entire history of you. Yeah, and I think that the fact that it cuts to black is actually significant because I don't know if you remember this, but in the earlier conversation at the dinner party, when one of the guests had said that she had been bugged and her grain had been removed, she comments that but I didn't lose my sight as if, yeah, as if the, that were, as if that were a fortunate kind of accident that she didn't lose her sight. But this episode ends with Liam cutting the grain out of his own behind his own ear. And then the episode goes to black, which seems to suggest that, that he, he's not so lucky. Blind, yeah. Right. Um, very, yeah. And, and not exactly an Oedipal story, but definitely an Oedipal decision that he makes there at the yeah. end. Listening to Black Mirror Reflections, which is mostly a labor of love and is at present ad free. If you like what you hear and if you're hearing what you like, consider donating to us at patreon.com backslash Black Mirror Reflections. That's patreon.com backslash Black Mirror Reflections. And now back to our conversation. It's interesting to me that you said that this was the first Black Mirror episode that gave you a feeling of what Black Mirror becomes, right? Yeah. I, I, I completely agree with that. I uh, often say to people who are unfamiliar with the series not to start with the first episode. And I largely that's just because I think it takes a person of a certain kind of constitution to be able to take in that first episode without some other kind of introduction. But I do think that the first episode is a world that is entirely like ours, and there's no real futuristic technologies 
in the first episode, the national anthem, first episode of the first season. Yeah, there's really, it it really could be our world with a different, just the only difference is that we're dealing with a fictionalized prime minister, really, and uh, a fictional princess. But the scenario is incredibly probable and and really is grounded in, in technology as it exists currently. And then the second episode of season one is this entirely futuristic world that bears almost zero resemblance to the world that we actually live in. Yeah, but the closest that we get to hard sci-fi, at least in the first couple of seasons, I think. I think uh, really the closest in any of the seasons to... I think you're right. Yeah. But this episode, I remember thinking and still think today that this episode is the most human-feeling Black Mirror episode. It is such a careful and insightful and at times deeply painful look at jealousy, at love, at insecurity. And it's acted brilliantly. Oh, um, yes. There's so I, I many that, subtleties in it. And, and then we follow this with the first episode of season two is uh, Donald Gleason. So we start to really get those kind of more powerhouse performances that we ultimately come to expect from Black Mirror. But yeah, I, I I totally agree. I think that what's really great about truly great speculative fiction, whether it's in fantasy or sci-fi or elsewhere, is picking a single detail that you change about reality, but still basing everything else in the truth of human emotion and real specific character details. Uh, and that's what we really do here. We have the only real difference in this reality is what if there's a camera in your eye that records? Right, everything exactly. else is real. Everything else that we expect from Liam and from Fee are exactly how you would expect someone to respond in, in these situations. It will maybe less so for, for how I would respond as Liam, but it's definitely a real person that exists in the world that would be incredibly obsessive over this technology. And we start to see how it unravels other relationships and really starts to define your character when you start to obsess over the details of carpet of the five-star hotel that you stay in. And now you have to show everyone that, like the neuroses that are extrapolated from these moments. Yeah, and I think that the technology is really incidental to all of those things. The way that the episode portrays the kind of dangers of falling under the sort of spell of obsessive jealousy or relationships that are unhealthy in this kind of possessive sort of way. Like all of that happens now without this photorealistic digital memory technology. And there are these moments in their conversations between Liam and Fee where you think, this would have been a great film even without the technology. I remember when they're arguing over whether or not the relationship with Jonas was, was it a month? Was it a week? Was it six months? And we all know from the outside, as we all do when you have a friend who's having this kind of problem and is retelling it to you, it really doesn't matter, right? The one person (laughs) meant, I used to be in a relationship with this person. It wasn't a big deal. And the other person really needs to know the details of the the not big deal. But Fee says to Liam, she says, look, not everything that's not true is a lie. And he, he takes this beat and he says, excuse me? And there is this moment where you think that is exactly how these conversations go because it's not at that moment a argument about whose memory is correct or who's accurately describing what happened. And so in that sense, Even if both of them had an absolutely perfect memory, that still wouldn't get at the problem that they're really having. And neither does ever having that objective recording. It's never truly going to solve anything because human beings don't actually respond that way to 
to either being proved wrong or being presented with objective evidence because everything is grounded in the subjective. I don't even think Liam presents it thinking that he's, I've got you. It's more, he really is lighting of, he's just adding kindling to the fire in a way. Like it's only this, I, I can't imagine in this world that this technology has ever actually been used to diffuse an argument. I think that it is always yeah, right. used to exacerbate. There's no way it's ever like, oh, hon, you actually did tell me to get the, yeah. you know, to, to put this on the Christmas list or whatever. Like it would never, ever work that way. That's what is so great about this episode is it really is so good at showing the sort of deeply, imperfectly human element of relationships, which is that fights that happen in relationships are never really about the thing that you're fighting about. They're about all of these other problems. <laughs> there was actually a great SNL skit many years ago where they had this kind of backpack stenographer. I think it was an SNL skit where you could like have in your relationship and really read back the last minute yeah. of the argument or whatever. But it was the same basic point, which is right. That- and, I, and I think a, a real fantasy that we all have in moments of, right. I wish that I just, there was a camera to show them that I'm right in this moment. Yeah, I'm objectively. Yeah. <laughs> right, like it's, it's not my interpretation. There's no subjectivity here. I am just totally right here. <laughs> yeah. Um, that would solve anything. That's the kind of dark side of these sort of human imperfections that are shown in the episode. But the flip side of it is the scene that we open with where he's in this job interview. He knows that he's tanking it and he later goes back and looks at it and overanalyzes it. But I remember thinking when I saw the episode for the first time, I was like, oh, who wouldn't want that? Absolutely. There's so, so many times where you already know it was bad. It's just, I just want to go back and confirm for myself that it was as bad as I remember it. <laughs> I, I even think maybe a year or two after this episode came out, I saw the first article about, oh, we're, this technology is coming, like the sort of Iris mm. GoPro kind of tech. But to, to me, it was so attractive to me in the convenience that it seemed to offer. But I think you mentioned in the 50 Million Merits episode, uh, developing this technology before totally understanding the, the consequences. Because there is so much utility that reminds me of smartphones, like your ability to just immediately search for information on your phone that you can then access. But it also takes you out of the present moment. And I think that what really stood out to me was how attractive that was, but also how immediately we were able to tap into things like living in a post 9-11, post-Patriot Act world, how we see it being used to authenticate your identity at the airport and like other ways that, you know, oh, this technology is cool. Here's how it would immediately be implemented against you. Um, Yeah, it would 100% be in airports before anywhere else. But since we're talking about the actual technology now, I want to pivot for a second because one of the, this is absolutely one of my favorite, has always been one of my favorite episodes. But one of the things that I don't like about it, I don't like about it, but I don't like about a, a common mistake that I think it makes easier to perpetuate is mm-hmm. this idea that this is how memory works. That memory right. is, is just a camera recording or an audio recording and that they're stored in files in our mind and that if we could access them, we could play them back perfectly. There was an animated, I think a Pixar film that came out a couple of years ago called Inside Out. 
Yes, Inside Out. Yeah. Yes, um, that was called Inside Out. That did the exact same thing. And even though I also thought that was a really great film, it also drove me crazy because the basic premise of this film is that each time you have a memory, it's like a marble and it, mm-hmm. it takes on a particular kind of color if it's a sad memory or a happy memory or whatever. And then it gets stored in some, you know, particular container that you can recall it. But always else, informed by perspective in a way. Right. Yeah. But, but, or um, else it just disappears. This idea that's how memory works is just, to me, just so deeply flawed and really worrisome as we're developing these kinds of technologies that are ultimately going to be brain machine interfaces, wearable technologies that are going to try to do these things. If we had this sort of ZI technology that just recorded everything that we had, that to think of that as equivalent to our memory seems just deeply problematic. But I'm wondering, it just both just as a person, but also as a filmmaker, what do you think about, because this is a very commonly repeated motif in sci-fi films, this view of memory. Yeah, there's also, to piggyback on what you said about Inside Out, there's another film from 2004, I think, called The Final Cut. It stars Robin Williams. It's not a particularly great film, but it is also about uh, the recording. of. In that situation, it actually is somehow related to the brain because certain memories can actually be crossed over with dreams. And it's a little bit more of a subjective recording uh, that is used purely in that world for a PowerPoint presentation at your funeral. It's a weird use of that technology. (laughs) But yeah, that film actually makes a point of kind of separating or actually getting into the subjectivity of these recordings, whereas here they are, are presented as more objective. And we actually get a character at the dinner who presents preferring this technology over memory because she says how easily it is to manipulate or suggest a memory. But in regards to your question, yeah, I think it is problematic because if I'm presenting a moment as a filmmaker, it's never, yeah, it's never grounded in objective reality. It is like my choice snapshot of that moment. And I also feel like in a world where we're able to record constantly on our phones, whether you're just doing that for personal family backup or for documentary or what have you, I feel like it's having an effect on our actual ability to remember because having these sort of like backlogs of visual representations of moments sometimes makes me not necessarily remember it as vividly because I am also filtering my human brain memory through the technology that I'm now viewing. The memory is less about that moment and more about my perception of the gray rectangle after the fact, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does. And this is exactly why I worry so much about this particular kind of presenting of memory operations, because it does pretend as if our memories are are just recordings, that we're just the recorder of our experiences and not we actually are, which is the editor, producer, and all of the Instagram filters for those experiences. As a documentary filmmaker, of course, you know that. I do think that there are a lot of people who think that documentary filmmaking is just point the camera and record the truth, but of course it's not. And I think that as a documentary filmmaker yourself, like there's always a perspective to the filmmaker. There is always a thesis, even if it's the thesis is to have no thesis. There's still always, there's eternal politics involved in how you're presenting that world. And we start to see, I think, through these characters, how their personal beliefs and politics and suspicions inform the way that they are viewing these screens and also the screens within screens, because some of these conversations are about the memory of other people's recorded memories too. So we really start to get into what is 
and I don't even know what to call that. Like that sort of tr- like trans memory, non-memory. It, it, it's I think intentionally confusing and muddling the lines between that objective and subjective reality in a way. I do actually find that really interesting because I also think that it is actually interesting to think about memories as cooperative ventures, mm-hmm. as shared creations. And this makes that a lot more obvious than we could possibly ever experience in our regular life. But to your point, like it's also what we learn about getting a more complex understanding of history in terms of different perspectives. Like we present the camera as though it is objective, but you learn in filmmaking that where you put the camera is a choice. Like the angle, the lighting, like all of those things are personal choices. And even when as anyone who has watched sort of court TV or anything, whenever a recording <laughs> is brought into as evidence, there is interpretation involved because even though one example within this episode is when Liam uses this lip reading reconstruction mm-hmm. to figure out what a conversation that is happening across the room. But even that sort of always, you're never going to be able to totally pick up on it's not a 360 camera. There's only so many degrees that you can point the camera at at any one moment to pick up that information. Actually, just even as you're saying this right now, it makes me think what would be the kind of ideal camera position for capturing my memories? And I'm not sure that it would be my eye's point of view. The most obvious thing that that cuts out is my own experience of myself as being a part of whatever the events that I'm recording memories are of happening. But of course, I don't ever see myself in my own experiences. So it it couldn't be a 360 camera. It couldn't be a a camera that also caught an image of me in it, which again is just (laughs) part of the problem of this idea of thinking about memories as just recordings. The other problem is, of course, thinking about memories as retrievable files and cutting out the way that we have all kinds of somatic ways of remembering. Supposedly, smell is one of the you know biggest triggers mm-hmm. for memory. I don't know if you play an instrument, but for most people who play instruments, that you actually have muscle memories. So yeah, this idea of memory as just a kind of camera pointed at what we see just seems really deeply problematic. No, that's that's an incredible point because yeah, like the texture of, for instance, we get a moment of after their first sexual experience, we get to just see a recording of that, but we don't know what the the texture of uh, the linens felt like or what like the the, the, the way that the air felt on their skin. There's so many things that maybe sometimes accent memories, but can also manipulate them in a way or, or, or manipulate our perspective on them. Those things are left out. We're only left with with really two senses, sight and sound. And that's just not what it means to be human. Plenty of people who are unable to see or hear still have memory and still have perspective on those memories. So that is an interesting point. So I want to come back to some of the details of this episode in a minute, but since you're my first person who's actually a filmmaker yourself that I've had as a guest on this show, I want to ask you just about the kind of editing and direction of this film. What do you wish they had done differently? What were some of your favorite shots? How do you think the way that technically it unfolded went? I think that it is interesting. I don't even know if this is a criticism, but maybe just talking through some of my immediate reactions. I think it's interesting that, at least so far as I can tell in the way that it was shot, 
the same camera was used for the grain footage as the sort of objective reality outside of the grain. So the in fiction camera in the world was the same. And that was often used for the reveal of information like when we see a sex scene from their perspectives and then we cut out to realize that's actually not, that's a past moment. The past and the present are shot the same way. And I think that is intentionally trying to muddle those lines and play with the way that we reveal information. Personally, I don't think that when this technology is implemented, and I do think it will be implemented, it'll be... (laughs) Like, think about the way that you might look at, like, the world's smallest cameras or a GoPro. Like, it's usually going to be, as they call it, a grain. It would be grainier footage. It probably wouldn't have the same resolution. It wouldn't necessarily be a stand-in for your eyes in that moment. Maybe the implication of this world is that we've gotten to that point. But I, I think that it's interesting that we did have a seamless visual language that put these recordings as the same as the sort of objective reality or the reality that we are present in throughout the episode. So that was really interesting to me. And related to that in terms of editing, the way that we reveal information is often through this grain. We get like, we are with Liam as he crashes his car, we've jumped through time. And then we understand his encounter with Jonas through that grain footage. The episode is shot or edited, starts to make you think in, in terms of the way that the characters would think about this technology. So you start to get information through these grain memories, which is foundational to, I think, the way that Liam now interprets the world. Like, he's not so much present in those moments as he is able to masochistically replay them and overanalyze them over and over after the fact. So the present moment is not as important as gathering that information to dissect later on. And we operate, I think, in a similar way when we are just waiting for the next grain to tell us how are we actually grounded in this scene? What's the context that we're missing? That's such a good point that he's not as present in his own life. And who would be if you knew that it could just be replayed so easily? I'm just thinking about when I, this is terrible to say, I feel like I shouldn't admit this in a recording. When I'm in conference lectures that I know are being recorded I'm probably not paying as close attention. I know I can listen to it later. It's human nature. Yeah, I don't, I have other places that my brain can go right now because I know that there's a backup of this. And yeah, and, yeah. And, and that I think that it's what's great about this episode is that it trains you to start to think about, yeah, technology the same way that the characters are. Because for them, this is not so different than the way that we use a phone. Yeah, it, it's just, it, it's interesting the way that we're starting to normalize this technology over the course of just 45 minutes. So let's talk about the flip side of that sort of ever-present slight distractedness, which is Liam's hyper-obsessiveness. So I know that in your films that you're really interested in looking at sort of mental health issues. And I'm wondering what you think about the way that jealousy, obsession, anger, and secrecy, how all of these things you think are portrayed in this film. Yeah, I think Black Mirror generally is so great about looking forward and looking back at the same time, right? This is uh, speculation on a future technology, but it's also a reflection of things like the ability to look at your significant other's digital footprint on Facebook and all those other things. We start, You start to get into that a little bit uh, more so with Be Right Back in the next episode after this. What we have to remember that this particular episode came out in 2011. And that's nine years ago. And now the sophistication of things like online stalking is Mm -hmm. off the chains. But, you know, then even only nine years ago, this probably 
I feel like when when you watch this episode today, you're like, yeah, this is what people do. It's just a metaphor for what people do. But it was you're right. It's burgeoning at this point. Like, like right, we even right. don't really have smartphones are not as commonplace at this moment as they are uh, in 2020, or, or um, as capable or as sophisticated as yeah. Are. And it's just interesting to see how it does feel like most, again, what you said, what I've heard you say uh, previously, not understanding the consequences of this technology that we create, which is we are giving everyone on the planet with all of their neuroses access to the same capabilities. And I've never seen a technology implemented that doesn't exacerbate those things. So I am super anxious. I find myself looking at the New York Times on my phone at two in the morning. Other people, especially if you're not super comfortable in your relationship, I could see you much like you might stalk someone's Instagram feed or figure out what they're tweeting about. You could use this technology to just pick away at your own kind of psyche, especially because you now think that you have an objective view of a moment. The way that I could imagine going on a first date and then backtracking and being like, was this person into me or was it like, was I boring? Did I do something wrong? I don't know if it's just a millennial lack of confidence that I generally observe, but I think that the deep insecurities of living in the 21st century make this really right territory to just feed into those insecurities yeah, by obsessing think, over the past. I completely agree. And I do think that this episode, it anticipated what is now quite common, but was, as you say, like only emerging at the time, which was this sense in which a lot of people live their lives slightly distracted in their actual present experience but then once they get away from their experience and they're scrolling through other people's you know, feeds or obsessing over the news or whatever, that they have this kind of myopic focus as if now I can actually look at the real truth that is can be overanalyzed and it becomes, yeah, obsessive. That's what we see in this night in the episode where Liam stays up all night, literally watching a clip and then rewinding it and rewatching the clip and then rewinding it and rewatching the clip and then rewinding it and just feeding into whatever festering toxic rage that is building up in him because he thinks that what he's getting is the truth. And because you're never able to separate yourself from from a moment that causes you distress. Like it is always accessible. Like why wouldn't you just keep torturing yourself and reliving it? Like we have the ability without, in a world without this technology, we can always walk away or throw up our arms. At some point, certain things are unknowable. We, we know that certain things are unknowable, but for people in this world, that's not true. Like everything to them is knowable. And, and because they think that they have a grounding objective perspective on this moment, or, or one that they can discover like a detective going through, like zooming in and enhancing like you're in Blade Runner or something. I can understand how thinking that you could dive into these moments, much like a conspiracy theorist. Exactly. You, exactly. It feeds into that, into that very human de desire to have control also, because I think in this world, particularly you, you have less control about your image in terms of other people. Like you, I don't know how you would get into the legality of, now you have to sign a release if you want someone to 
if, if, if you want someone's image to show up in your documentary or whatever, you have to sign a release. But what, right. are the, what is the legality when everybody is recording you 24-7? And that information apparently can be pinged to other screens or cut out or sent via Wi-Fi to someone else. It starts to make you feel like you have no control over anything except maybe these little arguments. Maybe that's the only place you find control. Yeah, and I think this will be a really interesting sort of transition in our relationship to technologies, because right now it does appear that we're in the age of everyone being obsessed with curating their own image. But once we lose that, like once, as you say, like we can't just walk away from it or control it or edit it in the way that we want then that's a whole new kind of obsession to have. Because like I said about like where you put the camera is a choice and each right. perspective is in a way, while it accords objective reality, it is there is always subjective sort of space that's being captured. Yeah, every person is going to have a different image of you, literally, like a different perspective that you can no longer control. You don't, your Instagram feed is not the only way that people are going to perceive of you anymore. Let me ask you another filmmaker question. Sure. If this technology were available, what do you think it would mean for filmmakers? Like for you as a director, oh. if you could just use your eyes as your camera. It's interesting to think about because I know that, for instance, sometimes documentary filmmakers are forced out of certain situations. They can't bring cameras into certain buildings. So you start to get into interesting territory in terms of what is on the record and off the record with interviews. I would assume me going into it, I would try to have a certain amount of journalistic integrity to say that this is from this point forward, I will be using grain footage of you, but I wouldn't like, I would have my own timestamps and things. But in terms of the way that other filmmakers would use it. I don't, I feel like we would have to get, the guilds would need to get together and define like ethical parameters for this because it's just so open-ended in a way. Like, and it might be different. I don't know if you've seen, there's a really delightful little show on HBO right now called How To with John Wilson, which is just him recording sort of things out on the street in New York, which seems to, would be fair game to me if I'm just walking down the street. I have access I, I can view this. No one's hiding this information from me. But how does that different when we're behind closed doors? I, I don't know. It's, it's yeah. scary to me. And I hope that someone else figures that out before it becomes readily available to filmmakers because it, it is it's scary to think about. Yeah, I also wonder whether or not cinema, if cinema persists as its kind of own art form, whether or not this sort of technology was force cinema to become ever more fantastical in order to distinguish itself from just what everyone does with their eyes. Or, yeah, I could see it going into really crazy territory. Like, you start to see people recording, for instance, VR films in a very specific way where you set down the camera and everything around it is curated. I could see you making films that way because if every one of the actors is also a camera that you could cut between at any point to get, like, it right, could be an entire subgenre of filmmaking in a way. Right, but that show, Peep Show, that Jesse Armstrong first became famous for, each shot being from the perspective of a character. But then you lose that third-person perspective that is really important to filmmaking. I think because you start to, it's filmmaking is such an empathy machine that it's important to step outside, like off of a character's shoulder, sometimes to be able to ground ourselves in the space. And if we started to make films like that, documentary or otherwise 
you start to lose a little bit of that. At the conclusion of this episode, please make sure to check out our post at readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com. That's readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com, where we'll include a list of further readings, references, and links to things that we talked about in this episode. Now back to the conversation. Okay, John, I want to, unfortunately, we need to wrap things up. Sure, yeah. No, don't apologize. This has been great. I could talk to you about this for hours. But I'm going to ask you three questions right here at the end that I ask my guests. So the first question is, what do you think is the lesson of this episode, the entire history of you? The second question is, what about this episode worries you the most or concerns you the most? And then finally, on a scale of one to 10, with one being a nightmarish dystopia, tech dystopia, and 10 being a you know perfect tech utopia, where do you think this episode falls? Okay, go. Okay. So to answer your first question, I think that what we talked about, the difference between objectivity and memory is important. But I actually think the parable that I take away from it is that happiness is related not just to your ability to forgive, but in a way to your ability to forget. I think that it's really grounded in that. Like the ability to forgive is so tied to memory. And when you don't have the ability to forget, it compromises all of your relationships. The second question, I think what I find most concerning about this is how attractive this technology is and how probably immediate, I I feel like this is something that is going to happen in the next decade, if not a little bit farther out than that. I've heard articles about people trying to implicate this technology as we start to talk about the bio-integration of certain things, like the show Years and Years is another great example of versions of this technology, but I think it's, ha- it's going to happen and we have to figure out what we're going to do about it. That's what's scary to me. And then to answer your third question, that because of that horror, I want to rate it pretty close to a one, but I think that every bit of technology forces us to consider what it means to be human in light of that technology. So I think it's just a matter of much like when when we've got personal computers or the internet, that sort of started to change our relationship to each other. It's just going to change that even further in like a post-human kind of way. So I would probably put it at maybe like a three to a four. Oh, okay. That's actually more dystopic than I thought that you would have said it was. That's interesting. Hey, I want to give you a chance before we wrap things up to, uh, since you have this film that's now currently available on Amazon Prime for free, if you want to just say a little bit about that film and plug any upcoming projects you have. Yeah, the film is again called The Way You Look Tonight, and it is a romantic comedy with a secret agenda. I won't give away more than that, but it starts with a character who is navigating modern online dating. He thinks he's found, you know, his perfect match. Everything's going great, and then she disappears into the night. He tries to put that experience behind him, but with each subsequent date that he has on this new dating site that's guaranteed to find his perfect match, he starts to notice strange similarities between all of these women and that first amazing date. And as the connection between all of these women becomes more clear, he'll have to open himself up to a whole new world of people and experiences. And I won't give away more than that, but it's called The Way You Look Tonight. It's streaming on Amazon Prime and anywhere else that you can buy or rent 
uh, movies. But yeah, I really encourage you to check it out, especially if you like speculative fiction. John, it is so great to reconnect with you. And let's not uh, let so long pass before we do this again, okay? <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm really grateful to you for, I, I'm excited about this podcast because I, I think that, I don't know if we're off the record at this point or not, but Thanks. yeah, Thanks. no, it's really cool to, I've seen a lot of articles about this. I've seen a lot of like scholarship, but it's really great to actually put voices to these names and really start to dive into these sort of human implications of this stuff, which I think that people should consider more often. This uh, Black Mirror, other than maybe The Twilight Zone, is the only successful anthology show of the last, really ever. And I think part of that is because the truth of what it's trying to, to say about where we're going as humans. And I think that we need to explore that quickly because these technologies are coming and we need to address that as quickly as we can. I couldn't have said it any better myself. Thanks so much, John. I really appreciate it. Of course. You've been listening to Black Mirror Reflections. Check us out and please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your regular podcasts.